welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and play styles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, and what didn't, and we talk about it all. In this episode, we are going to discuss the second part of Chapter 9 of the 5th Edition Dungeon Master's Guide in our continuing series of deep dives into the 5e DMG. And with us uh, back again is the wonderful Jared Rasher, the only person to ever say anything in the 50-something episodes <laughs> of this podcast that has been controversial and, um, and indefensible and th- someone, someone to make it upset. How are you, sir? I'm perfectly okay because nobody has started to react to me saying that, gosh darn it, some things will fight to the death because they don't know they're fighting to the death. <laughs> In fairness, I vociferously defended all the crap I said before and would do so again. <laughs> and that other voice that you hear is, of course, my uh, constant co-host, Brandis Stoddard. Welcome, sir. Howdy, howdy. And so we are beginning this episode with creating a monster. You know, what's interesting right off the bat is because this chapter has taken so long to get through, it does strike me that it's weird that all of these optional rules that are like rules modules are in the same chapter as a dive into the theory on how to build monsters and backgrounds and subclasses and classes and races. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I I also am delighted by their um, fig leaf over why there's no phoenix in the monster manual. <laughs> that did strike me as very odd that, that right off the bat they're like, yeah, there's no phoenix stats, but this is what you could do. <laughs> right. And they're not wrong. There's nothing in the world wrong with their answer. <laughs> Not really, no. It was just interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so right. This is some some good advice for how to go from the monster manual to something that feels completely different and is pretty materially different in ways that aren't irrelevant uh, without doing any work at all. <laughs> and that's really cool. Yeah, I like that they're introducing the idea of reskinning things like up front for especially for newer dms where it's just like don't don't worry about it you know find a stat block that feels right and then add some things to it and you're good and i wish they would call it reskinning to be perfectly honest (laughs) yeah um and it was switching weapons it is really just saying it's fine sweetie it's (laughs) fine yeah yeah um adding a special trait like they, they don't talk about you might need to change the, the challenge rating on this thing. No, it's fine. It's just a little trait. It's fine. <laughs> well. Because a lot of the, the challenge rating like stuff in 5th edition comes down to, it's pretty close. Sure. Well, I wish they would actually mention the features that are on the spread on two two or three pages later. Mm-hmm. Sure. 280 to 281, right? Yeah, like Totally reasonable. Well, I... It's interesting because it's something um, in Adventures in Middle-Earth. They have, like, multiple pages of traits. And, you know, part of why that is in Adventures in Middle-Earth is because 
you're running into a lot of wolves and orcs and trolls and goblins. So, you know, giving one the, the biting trait where, you know, you have an orc that is particularly good at tearing your throat out with its teeth instead of, you know, using a weapon makes sense. But also Mm -hmm. it's nice to be able to plug those different traits onto things just to distinguish something as not being the same as all of the other ones in a group. Yeah. And I feel that. And that's, that's, that's decent. You know, I do, I do like their little reskinning section. It's, it's helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is the easiest way to start sort of creating creatures, right? One of the interesting um, additional things on that is that you you look at, um, and I want to say it is Volos that has the additional ogre variants. Mm-hmm. I think it, like, I think so. It's literally uh, just an example of them Mord- doing that. It's Morden Canaan's. Is it Morden Sure. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. 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 The, the, the really cool ogre variants. Mm-hmm. Like those are great. And they're literally just an example of doing this. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. And I, I ended up doing a lot of that when I was running Storm King's Thunder because like I didn't want every frost giant to be carrying a uh, yep. great axe and you know, so I would have frost giants that I had statted up with shields that had better armor classes, and I'd have some that mm-hmm. were statted up as berserkers. So they I slapped on the uh the reckless trait. So yeah. you know, just for some variance there. That's absolutely awesome. Um like it's nice sort of low touch kind of stuff where you don't need to necessarily recalculate any of the math of the, the stat block. If you want to, you can, it's fine. You could go grab a different giant and change its energy resistance to, you know, cold immunity. Mm -hmm. And you're off to the races, to be honest with you. And, And if, if anyone out there is running storm Kings thunder and you do want some variety of giants, the giants that were in like the Ravnica thing are great for saying this is actually a frost giant. So it's immune to cold. Nice. Cause they do have some nice variant giants in there that are just general giants because they're from the magic setting. Awesome. Um, so next up after that is creating quick monster stats, uh, which is, you know, mostly about its table where you look up all the the different stats. And I don't want to blow anyone's mind here, but this was never exactly what Watsi used. This was always <laughs> a very simplified version of what Watsi was using. And it's become decreasingly what they're it's, it's become farther and farther away from what they're using mm-hmm. because they figured out how to do it better. This they never promised you that this would um a rose garden be the, be the real thing or they keep <laughs> using it. However, since it's the only benchmarks that we have, I still tend to look at this when I am reviewing things to see where third party monsters fall. Uh, so also Sam, I'm sorry. I totally no soldier joke about it. I never promised you a rose garden. That was, <laughs> that was kind of me. No, uh, it's cool, man. Yeah, the uh yeah, god, I have so much to say. <laughs> um, okay. I mean, you know, cuz it's it's an ongoing problem that this table doesn't really match any thing. Right? I mean, <laughs> but, but right, and and so that's what I, I was actually going to pivot on the word ongoing, like is it really <laughs> like you know, I, I think I think the problem lies in the fact of 
if if it's an if it's a DM who maybe isn't even a new DM, maybe they're an intermediate DM, and they're just for the first time trying to create their own creatures. I mean, all of this is fine. It's yeah. it's some benchmarks, you know, and and they'll learn hopefully through play through throwing those monsters up against actual PCs, right? That you know what what parts need a little push up and what parts need to be accentuated more and maybe you know the different power levels of certain features and whatnot and that's sort of a that's the art part of being a dm that's creating monsters versus the science part right like it's the table's not perfect but it's a great guideline to get you started and Uh, for that it's fine the one big thing that i wish they included here is some of the advice that shows up in 13th age about building monsters. Yeah. Uh, don't go high, uh, high defense, ultra low offense. Mm-hmm. That kind of monster just sucks. Don't do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's good advice that everyone needs to hear once. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and, and some of that other kind of advice that I want to say is found in the 4 DMG two on you good encounter teams. You see some of the same kind of stuff of, you know what? Don't run all soldiers. Yeah. It's not as good of an idea as you think it's going to be. Uh, all brutes is fine. All soldiers is not. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it might make a fun fight one time until it doesn't, you know, like yeah. it's, it's going to become a slog. Right. Yeah. Like the, the fail state of that kind of fight is actually just boredom. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. What's What's funny about that is this goes back to the uh, morale rules that we were talking about. I remember some of my uh, friends that were very regular players in like the Wednesday night D and D organized play during Fourth Edition, and it became very standard for them to get something bloodied and then intimidate it because there was a rule that was basically saying. If something get, it gets bloodied and you intimidate it, it'll run away. And they resolved a lot of fights that way because mm-hmm. they didn't want to slog through all of the hit points that it had. Yep. <laughs> right. For sure. The overall, I, I've used this so many times and <laughs> it does have its kind of weirdnesses. Um, especially because like, we talk a lot about how one of the things you often have to do as a DM is give monsters more hit points. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, they're all balanced to have fewer hit points than this would give them at their CR because their defensive CR is made up of some other stuff. Yeah. Well, just give them more hit points. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know, man. And the thing is too, like I, like I was saying, when I'm doing my reviews, I don't have anything else to really compare it to. So this is a place to start, even though I know that there's other maths going into things. Yep. What's really interesting to me is when you dive down into some of the comments in the more um, thorough section, you know, for Mm -hmm. creating it from scratch, what they tell you should figure into challenge rating and what they tell you shouldn't is very interesting. For example, it will tell you that immunity to conditions does not factor into challenge rating fascinating <laughs> at least according to this that's one of the I things that does not figure see into how, how you would actually be pricing them so small 
most of the time as to be kind of ignorable. It does mean that, you know, the monster isn't paying anything to be immune to your Archfey Warlock. Yeah. And because charm and fear effects. And especially if you're talking about someone building something from scratch, you're basically telling the DM, yeah, go ahead and build this thing that nullifies your PC's abilities and it won't affect its CR any. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and honestly, if you're going to be the type of DM that pushes that, I make this the most powerful monster I can because it's in budget to give it all this stuff. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. Just, no. <laughs> just set down the book and walk away. You're doing it wrong. That's, that's the whole wrong spirit to have in using these rules. Yeah. Um, th- that is the same spirit as uh, in uh, uh, 3.5. Uh, I can give it one level of warrior for extra hit points without increasing its CR. Yeah. Don't. <laughs> yeah. It's bad. You should feel bad. Yeah. I mean, but to be fair, what it does in step nine, it does kind of say that immunities don't matter, but but it it also then gives you a way to determine if it does because it <laughs> likens it to hit points right and then it has sure. this effective hit point right table and it basically tells you if you give this immunity then that's like giving the creature this x number of hit points so adjust the cr accordingly as if it had that many hit points yeah but that's different than being immune to fear or conditions you know that's literally being immune to That's some types true, of yeah. damage. Right, right. I'm talking about damage types. Yeah. Yes, you're, you're correct there. Yes. Um, it, it does make me sad that like, vulnerabilities just show up so rarely because vulnerable is so much extra damage if the PCs can pitch into it. Well, and that's another one that it says doesn't affect, you know. Yes, and I would like to say um, that is crap. Because if you have something, for example, theoretically, picture a DM that is very sad because his monster has vulnerability to fire and he has a wildfire druid and a uh, dragon sorcerer in his party. (laughs) Friend, mistakes were made. (laughs) Whoops. Oh, goodness. This was not a challenging encounter. Yeah, like what they're what they're much more into is like it has resistance to a bunch of stuff, but not that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say Cobble Press goes even harder for that specific like approach. Um, yeah, we'll get into that right now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I I don't actually have a ton to say about all the individual little facets of this process. Because it is just step-by-step of a process. Well, it's weird, though, because there are points where they say, for example, with flying, after a certain point, flying shouldn't be figured in, but at low levels it should. But I would argue that um, immunities and resistances kind of fall into that same category because at some point your characters, even if they don't have magic weapons, are going to have ways of ignoring those. Oh, oh yeah, immunity to... Resistance or immunity to non-magic weapons is a super strange area of design at this point in the game mm-hmm. because there are so many whole classes or specific subclasses that just opt out of it. Mm-hmm. And that is weird, man. To your point, Jared, 
the second paragraph in step nine actually says, adventurers have more resources at higher levels to counteract such defenses, making resistances and immunities less relevant at higher levels, but they don't account for that really in their table later on. Yeah. They state it, but it doesn't figure into the math anywhere. Right. Well, so the, the hit point multiplier for resistance, resistance and immunities tails off. So, so it kind of does. Yeah. It steps down from double to times one or double to times one and a quarter. But it also still feels like that's a binary thing. Like either you can bypass those things or you can't for sure. And like, I mean, this if is if you want to convince me that immunities are bad design, I'm here. <laughs> well, honestly, <laughs> this is why I really like what they did with the uh, Loop Guru in mm-hmm. in uh, the Ravenloft book, where it is a werewolf that regenerates mm-hmm. unless mm-hmm. you attack it with silver. So it's not yep. the on or off thing. It's the fact that you know it, it's it's going to have the hit points it has, but it will get back some of those hit points if you're not using the right thing. Yeah. Yep. So, I agree with that. I mean, I, so I, I'm, I kind, I, I'm of two minds because I know these numbers are not exactly. Well, I think of them as broken, <laughs> right? They're not exactly perfect. It's fine. They are. They're sure. fine for if you're just learning to do this. And so I understand their utility, right? Oh, they're what Watsy had when they released this thing. Yeah, you say that, but then they, it doesn't even match what's in the monster manual. <laughs> well, right. Because that process is still more complicated than this. Right, right. But but anyway, so I, what I was going to say is, let me tell you what I like about this. I actually like that in this creating a stat block section, it goes through and it tells you something about each element of the stat block. And it's trying its best to give you a logical way to think about what's in that part of the stat block and what information that contains and why it may or may not be as important as you think or don't think it is. Right. And I don't necessarily agree with some of them as we're talking about the immunities and all that stuff, but I appreciate the fact that there, this is one place in the DMG where they are being extremely specific about how they're telling you how to do something. Mm-hmm. And it, they do a good job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They do a good job. We know that by now there's been sort of a evolution of creature creation in a way, and we know that the monsters, the published monsters, don't exactly match these and all that. But they did a good job for what they were working with. And in terms of writing instructions on how to think about these elements from their perspective. I almost think that if it had been less of an absolute uh, math formula – it would have been better. Like if they were to say just this tends to make something, you know, more dangerous. So this might add one or two to the CR, but that's going to depend on your party, which actually later in this thing, it actually tells you to consider your party as part of the CR, which is interesting because that's not, that's very specific to a monster you make for your campaign, not for a general monster. You know, the thing about flying, uh, matters more at low levels uh, really just makes me wish that, uh, sorry, I guess I don't mean it makes me wish. It, it feels like an entry in the argument about just flying matter for PCs at low levels. Mm-hmm. And it's here right at the gate. They're just starting that fight. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, the, the okay. Here's another thing that I think is interesting, and I'm not, you know, one way or the other, but blind sight, dark vision, tremor sense, and true sight have no bearing on challenge rating. Tell that to somebody trying to use stealth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. So dark vision. Mm. <laughs> All these things that. We do a whole other shows about. Uh-huh. And just the, the weird stealth meta of <laughs> like how much you look at the the narrative of well, you're you're in a pitch black room, you can see because you have dark vision. The monster can see because it has dark vision, but you're both more than sixty feet away from each other. Oh, but <laughs> The, the the guy in the back has to have a light spell. Oops. <laughs> and we get into it. You just played a rogue wrong if you don't have dark vision. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I not. Don't, I don't right. like that either. Can we step, can we step back from the flying thing for a second and the, for and sure. the, the census thing for a second and talk about the major cop out in this thing? Let me sure. read it to you. <laughs> Innate spell casting and spell casting. Okay. <laughs> the impact that the innate spellcasting and spellcasting special traits have on a monster's challenge rating depends on the spells that the monster can cast. Spells that deal more damage than the monster's normal attack routine and spells that increase the monster's AC or hit points need to be accounted for when determining the monster's final challenge rating. See the special traits section in the introduction of the monster manual for more information on these two special traits. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing that's really interesting about that is a lot of people, and I personally agree, but they will say when you're, you know, when you're uh, playing, you know, when you're using a spellcasting monster, if you want to swap out some of the spells, go ahead and do it. But according to this, that's changing its challenge rating. If you're giving yep. it, you know, if you are swapping out that comprehend languages for an actual combat spell. Yeah. All right. And, and that's another great case of, but really just don't sweat that fiddly CR math, please. Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. give people XP based on CR. <laughs> we aren't anymore. Which, you know, and I'm okay with that if they just say it. Yeah. Right? But well, we're going to All we're the adventurers pretend. do, but the DMG doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, the, the other thing that I thought's amusing that doesn't figure into CR is your, uh, your skill bonuses. Because it flat out tells you like you can give them proficiency in something or you can double their proficiency bonus none of that changes their cr so if you have something that is really good at murdering people from from a hidden position that doesn't affect its cr at all right this is fine yeah no problem (laughs) i mean no no problem in fairness creating good functional lurkers to use the 4 term is really hard in fifth. Yeah, because there's always that one person. What's your passive <laughs> perception? Oh, it's only 22. Yeah. <laughs> hey, a ranger with a, uh, a companion, are you? Cool. Cool story. Damn it. Yeah. So so let me um, let me pivot back to something I like about this section, okay? Um, attack riders, uh, the bottom of page 278. Many monsters have attacks that do more than deal damage. Some effects can be added to an attack to give it a flavorful twist. 
Those include, and then it gives four examples, right? So, you know, adding damage of a different type, uh, having the monster grapple on a hit, or allowing them to knock the target prone on a hit, or something, something, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Can I have more of those examples, please? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and can you tell me how they affect the CR? <laughs> because that's kind of the section we're in. <laughs> See, and here's the thing. I've seen some of this done in 5e but i like the idea that when you inflict a condition on something it opens up the monster to being able to use other things that it can't use until it inflicts that condition right yeah sea uh, hags are really good for that except mm-hmm. they use the frightened condition and haha no too many immunities yeah um well i'm gonna let me toss in another one here just to you know, rile rabbit up because she's sitting right here <laughs> whether or not a monster has telepathy has no bearing on its challenge rating <laughs> it's a it's a heavy sigh from rabbit there heavy uh-huh. sigh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm in trouble later that's good <laughs> But no, I would love it. Like if some, if some of the things that caused fear, once something's afraid of you, it does extra psychic damage with its attacks. I would love stuff like that to show up more often. Yeah, that, that does happen. Some um, it's, I think I see it a bit more often in some third party designs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I will say that I think a big part of why it doesn't show up more frequently is just, um, concerns about it, having a, a complex action sequence to for the, the DM to understand, to resolve. And then it, it gets so few actions that if you have to spend, you know, one whole action, not doing damage, something's gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which isn't necessarily the case for frightened, unless there's a lot of frightened immunity running around, <laughs> you know, like there just is a paladin. But what can you do? Uh, so the the huge two page spread of monster features is cool. Some of the specific ones that they include here are a little oh that gets a call out. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like like reel from the Roper. Well, what's uh, oh what's really interesting though is some of them get a call out to tell you that it doesn't affect CR. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, right. Like a lot of these are you know call outs to, to tell you it doesn't do anything to the CR. Well, here's my favorite. You, I'm sure you'll be shocked. Innate spellcasting. See step 13 under creating a monster stat block. You know, fair enough. Let That's... me go Let me go there and see what it says. Oh, go see the monster traits in the monster manual. Oh, good. Awesome. Yep. Uh, well, that's like uh, looking up a, a for loop. Yeah. <laughs> It'll tell you to go see a while loop. Oh, goodness. Well, the other thing that I find interesting is the White's Life Drain does not get figured into its uh, damage. Rude. Um, (laughs) Right? Rude. Like, for surviving that one fight, you're right, it doesn't change surviving that one fight. It does change the rest of your day. Yeah. Your day is hosed, (laughs) but... Like my maximum hit points are now kind of shredded. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
Um, all right. And then there's just the, the next page is just the table of other races that we didn't write, didn't do a full write up on. Oh, huh. yeah. And some only get knocked down a few pegs, which, uh, I don't know. <laughs> that yeah. doesn't really do a whole lot. There, there's also some interesting wording when they talk about the NPCs, which is a little weird. And I think it's thought it's showing that thought processes have changed now because it says an average commoner. So it's acknowledging that humans have a range, but then it says an ogre. So it's basically kind of say, you know, ogres are ogres, but you know, human commoner there's averages. So there's higher and lower. <laughs> sure. Hmm. Sure. I mean, it's I. I'm more inclined to worry about the features than changing the ability modifiers. And even then, most of the time, I will just say two of the guards are dwarves and one's a human. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I do like being able to use like this veteran happens to be an ogre. Yeah, and I just I can just decide what that means. To, whether I'm using the veteran stat block, the ogre stat block, or some mix thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it really highlights that weirdness of what is a monster, please? <laughs> uh, within the span of humanoid, what is a monster? Yeah. Um, and then we get monsters with classes. Uh, an idea that they would they've put last because they like, they'd like you to not do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would like to not do it too. <laughs> I mean... If, if folks, if you didn't play uh, 3.x, you don't know our pain. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Like, like first and second did this occasionally, but yeah. third was way into it. Speaking of um, uh, third edition throwback, buried in all of that is also rules for using oversized weapons, which I had forgotten were actually in there. Yeah. And basically the rules for oversized weapon is just, yeah, you got disadvantage if you try and use it and you can't use it if it's more than two sizes bigger than you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you wanted to have disadvantage, you could lug around that, uh, that, that ogres. uh... (laughs) Well, or if you're a barbarian who uses reckless attack all the time, (laughs) like you should, you can just use uh, an ogre's great axe just all the time. Yep. It's fine. (laughs) And that's awesome. <laughs> like that that is the very most JRPG thing of all time. <laughs> it is it's interesting though because I had completely forgotten it. I mean, it's again, it's in this section. It's not in combat or anything else. Mm-hmm. But it's in there. Well, let me uh, also point you to another very, very extremely helpful thing. It's uh, at the bottom of the NPC features table. And it notes that some of these uh, NPCs uh, have um, the races have a little asterisk next to them. And the asterisk means that you should um, see the player's handbook for descriptions of this race's features, none of which alter the NPC's challenge rating. By the way. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's also letting you know for sure that the NPC stat blocks don't include a human adjustment to ability scores. That's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is good because it'd be really super annoying to have to remove. <laughs> <laughs> so the stat block 
This, yeah. You got to apply something to it. <laughs> like, like, just imagine if all of these included and a penalty to all of these scores because it's not human. Right. <sighs> no. So next up, I, I think we need to be done with everything we're saying about this and move to creating yeah. a spell. Is that okay? So I understand, dear audience, that we are laughing about this because, um, well, just use these guidelines a few times and then put those creatures against uh, your PCs and we'll see what happens. <laughs> I'll be laughing too. I will say, though, it covers a lot of territory, so I don't want to give the impression that the people that wrote this didn't know what they were talking about and more that maybe the people that wrote this didn't realize how deep this was going to go when they were trying to show people how to do it on their own. Yeah. Yeah. And as I said, that they do format it very well. It's step by step. They explain their point of view and the reasoning for what they're saying for most cases. Um, but just, you know, us having seven years of experience with this sort of, you know, puts the match to the pages, right? It, it really does. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as I don't need to tell Sam or Jared, but I'll go ahead and tell our audience, a lot of the baseline math works a lot better if you have, if you're, if you're starting PCs with lower ability scores, such as the the standard elite ar- array of 15, 14, 13, 12, 10, 8, mm-hmm. which doesn't happen a lot in my experience. Maybe, maybe y'all are, but I'm not. No. Um, and if you don't hand out any magic items at all, <laughs> right, which I'm right. certainly not doing. And like Sage from two episodes, well, three episodes ago is angry for some reason, a million miles from here. and doesn't know why right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we know from the, the handy chart in this DMG that you really shouldn't hand out magic items until fifth level anyway. Cause you know, oh, for you, God's sake, when you make a character higher level, at higher level, they don't tell you to assign magic items until they're at least fifth level. <laughs> well, it wouldn't even matter because they wouldn't change the monstrous CR anyway. <laughs> right. How do we end up recording for so long, guys? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a mystery. mystery. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so creating a spell. Um, this is a, a shorter section. Um, and maybe not entirely mysteriously has held up better because it is uh, sort of a more rigid uh, guideline, but as spells apply, you know, conditions uh, as the rules element and also other weirdness, it does get much more. Is that okay? Yeah. Like I'm still not completely comfy with a, um, a cantrip that inflicts prone mm-hmm. because yeah. like, prone is so good for all of your friends, unless they're all archers, which oops. <laughs> um, but like if there's uh, stabby rogues or fighters or paladins or barbarians or monks or whatever in the party, they are going to wreck that thing's day before it, possibly before it can do a single thing about being prone. Um, and, and other similar like peripherals that spells have picked up. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I do think it's interesting that they actually have a multiple targets uh, entry for cantrips. <laughs> and, and it's 1d6. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, uh, there are a very small number of multi-target cantrips. They're all five-foot range. Mm-hmm. They're, they're the point-blank AoEs of, uh, oh, God, everyone's attacking me. Yeah, I'm surrounded. Business. I'm in danger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I see. I I cantrip damage goes out the window for me because when I was playing my cleric, it was always told the dead. So oh, yeah. for sure. <laughs> well, only because it's the best. <laughs> um. So here's a way that I use this that I almost feel guilty using this, but you know what? Sometimes you get lazy. Um. <laughs> I have used this just to say. Okay, a spell casting thing uh, used its fifth level spell slot, and it did eight uh, d ten to you. <laughs> That's super yeah. fair. Yeah. <laughs> it's super fair. Uh, I have not done that, but uh, some interesting things happen, especially if you bolt on, uh, and if it had missed, there'd be no effect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because suddenly that is. But uh, another, uh, yeah, yeah, 25% damage. So, uh, 10 D 10. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, it's, the, the other thing oh. that is interesting about this is it doesn't take into account damage types and yeah. the, that does matter for, <laughs> cause you're going to have right. a lot of people that can handle, you know, mitigating damage from fire a lot more than they can from psychic. Right. Though also, fire damage that ignores resistance is more of a thing than psychic damage that ignores resistance. True. By a small margin, anyway. But but yeah, like the, the game design treating all damage flavors as power equal is <laughs> just not really how the game plays. Yeah. Because fire resistance and cold resistance are several orders of magnitude more common than any other resistance. Necrotic yeah. resistance is maybe a, a, a middling third. <laughs> yeah. I did 8d10 thunder damage. Uh, well, I mean, it, it isn't as extreme as third ed, where sonics, you say. Oh. <laughs> Yep, got nothing for sonic damage. No idea how to get sonic resistance other than specifically casting protection from energy. But it's well, just, not, just not happening. So anytime you can change something to sonic, it is much better. Well, that's when you need a vibranium shield. Fair. <laughs> that's super fair. So the thing about this section is it really should be called creating a combat spell. Yeah, there's no guidance for new utilities. There's, there's yeah. no guidance for anything else. Literally or even new nothing defense else. Spells. Yep. Yeah, and that's why I said, you know, when I'm feeling lazy and don't want to look something up, it's just, okay, I burned a fourth level spell slot. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, it, all you can really do for utilities and defensive spells is to do your own benchmarking. Mm-hmm. And in fairness... The guidance on that would be 
Go to the player's handbook and see what it's most like. <laughs> you know what? Fair. Well, I I actually think though, but they've got this spell damage table. They could they could actually give guidance on what would be an appropriate. You know, is what's the difference between increasing an AC versus you know increasing the resistance to a certain damage type? Or you know what I'm saying? Just even just if it's like if it's a very vague paragraph, just even addressing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That'd right. certainly be nice. Well, and it also, even for combat spells, it doesn't touch on things like, what about a combat spell that when you hit zero hit points, you are just dead? How does that affect this compared to the damage that it's doing? Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. So I feel like this section is a little lacking and I don't know if they thought they were going to, uh, expand upon it later on, or they I, didn't I, know, so they left it. You know, what's here is very specific, but it does it covers such a tiny niche. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, training up a stable of homebrew and third party creators is not a pressing goal for them, right? Yeah, right. It'd be nice if it were. Speaking as one, but <laughs> it, it's not. It's not a pressing goal for them. You say that, but this chapter is 27 pages long. Uh, right. This is, this is all kind of fig leafy. Yeah. Well, of course. You know? Yes. So creating magic item is <laughs> where we really get into just, um, good luck. Yeah. Go, go see the, go see chapter seven and benchmark on your own and yes, it'll be fine. Yes. Reskin again. We don't want to use that word, but just reskin. Well, it's, it's like I was saying it, it, when we discussed chapter seven, like a bag of holding is uncommon. It's power is either exactly what you need and it's amazing or yeah, who cares. Yeah. And there's just no way in the world to understand which of those it's going to be until, you know, emergent story is emergent. Um, Right. And the problem that I have here is I have freestyled so many magic items and then later thought, wow, that was a mistake. And this doesn't (laughs) really address any of that. (laughs) (laughs) Like here's a scimitar. And for every two hit dice you spend, you can do an extra one of your hit dice and damage. And that was an interesting experiment that I just handed out on the fly to someone. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, the attunement rules, here, the attunement guidelines here are very, uh, the, the, these two bullet points are good. That They're fine and good. Mm-hmm. There, there needs to be a bit more that goes into that. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm increasingly coming to the conclusion that, uh, Unless it provides like passive out of combat benefits, probably a lot of weapons shouldn't require attunement because it makes fighting with anything other than a single two hander so weird. Mm-hmm. And it, it's also interesting because they are very vehement at the beginning of the chapter. You don't want to break that three attunement thing. But yeah. the flip side of that is to make sure you're making proper things into attunement based mm-hmm. items. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, the, the guidance on well that should be attunement is kind of light. It's kind of light. 
<laughs> well, and here's here's the thing too. Like it says at the at the bottom of the modifying an item section, it says, "Remember the tools that are provided for modifying items in Chapter Seven. Giving an item an interesting minor property, quirk, or sentience can add flavor." But then it doesn't actually say those things in the creating a new item part. Sure. I I wish that they approached the creating the item uh, section with a more step by step format. Right, like I know that's a that's a big ask. Well, it, it's it's such a such a big field of, out of all the things you can imagine, here's your process. Right, right. And but you can you can write a process that provides a framework that is that is that ha- has the ability to slot in different things. That is, it's non-specific enough, but it's still a framework for thinking about the issue. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the back end of this chapter could be a book in and of itself that is more detail on how to do all of these things. Absolutely. And the question is, what kind of market would you have? And would they even be interested in doing that sort of thing? Well, I mean, selling the M's Guild is is what you would do, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Watsy's not going to release it. Yeah. And that's fine. They made the DMs Guild for this mm-hmm. because, like, again, they aren't actually in the business of training up a stable of of third-party writers. Yeah. Right? They, they sort of have their own onboarding process, which is more involved than, have you read Chapter 9 lately? <laughs> <laughs> oh, pistosh. But- you mean they wouldn't send you a survey where they would quiz you on the uh, elements that were in chapter nine? And- <laughs> oh, <laughs> dude. <laughs> Too soon? <laughs> mm. Mm. Choices were made that day. Let me tell you. Um. Oh, oh, that's, that's the other weirdest thing in this section that, uh, my eyes skate over each time. I don't even think about it. L- look at the magic item power by rarity table. Yeah. You find anything weird? I do. What is a plus four item doing in my fifth edition, Jared? <laughs> <laughs> Just sitting there. We don't do that here. <laughs> Just like even even the coolest legendary stuff they hand out. Does not do that. Just sitting there gnawing at the edge of bounded accuracy. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like shooing out the house with a broom. Get that plus four out of here. Right? Mom, there's a plus four in the house again. Uh, I'm sure someone um, has used that as justification for using for uh, giving someone a plus four in some product somewhere, though. No doubt. All right. So creating new character options. Oh boy. Speaking of things um, that kind of went out the window. <laughs> well, I'm going to go ahead and tell y'all I have created a lot of new character options in my career and I have never read this section. <laughs> um, because even if I had, it was, uh, permanently outdated by 2017 Mm -hmm. and 
who, buddy, if you thought it wouldn't outdated in 2017, let me tell you about 2020. Yeah, yeah. Xanthar's and Tasha's just um, put put two in the back of the head for this whole section. You just need to be reading UAs and what's going on in official releases and thinking about how to think about it deeply. I, I feel like parts of Volo, ki- Volo kind of... Uh embraced this and wrote it into the uh, ground like uh, Dr. Strangelove, though. Well, uh, you're not wrong, but the the example race section is just, uh, yeah, we, we wrote that. We sure did. It was not official then, and oh boy, well, what gets me resemble what we do. What the we first question just gets me, even the way it's phrased. Why does my yeah. campaign need the race to be playable? I mean... Why? Why? Just because a player wants this thing, should I make it for them? No, they're ruining my vision. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, God. And then, like, some of them just are really kind of big red flags. Is there an okay. interesting conflict ba- built into this race's history? Oh, no. No, no, no. No, no. <laughs> well, like, it, they need a story, and a story is conflict, is what I think they're trying to say. Yes. But the problem is they have too many existing ones where it is, you know, orcs hate dwarves and elves and elves hate them back. You know, (laughs) it's like that's actually not an interesting conflict, really. All the fun of racism. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, The other thing, it's interesting, the stuff that they, you know, tell you that are important. Like you should design uh, sub races and races with what classes they're going to be good at in mind, which is way like, that's not even from the problematic standpoint. That's just from the standpoint of, yeah, you're designing this to where someone can't have fun with it. If they don't play the classes that you have identified them being good at. Yep. Yep. Like that's, that's designing for a design flaw. I think this section more than maybe any other in this book suffers from the evolution of thought <laughs> and design uh, over the past, you know, seven years. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty, pretty, pretty charitably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, although I will admit I was kind of excited to see some version of Aladrin because that was one of my favorite things that came out of fourth edition. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Uh, definitely popular in the gaming groups I'm in. Mm-hmm. I'm playing one now. <laughs> Um, and, and Colin actually wrote his own version of, uh, of Aladrin for his setting that it, it is basically face step plus plus mm-hmm. uh, as one of their, their core defining features. And mm-hmm. to each sub race of Aladrin has its own face step adjacent mm-hmm. feature. Right. That's very cool. Um, I mean, I'm very interested to see. If things go the direction that the uh, the Draconic UA kind of indicated, I would be interested to see if someday we don't see like High Elf or Eladrin as its own thing, and we don't have you know sub races muddying mm-hmm. up the you know the situation anymore. That is definitely an interesting format to to see them go to. Uh, and I sort of get the feeling that it is just uh, 
developing a violent allergy to the word subrace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I, I'm here for that. I mean, if you go to something like, uh, like, uh, oh, what is the term that they used in Ravenloft? Lineage. Ancestry. Lineage. Oh, lineage. If you go to something like lineage, what do you call it? A sub lineage? That's <laughs> right. No. And that's the thing. That's why it would have to be, you know, Right, like uh, high elf and uh, wood elf are just lineages mm-hmm. released fully distinctly. Yeah, but whatever word they they land on, it gives you more design space to say what they are instead of saying, "Oh, all elves are this thing." But you right. know, mm-hmm. well, I mean, uh, all of Tolkien's elves are still elves even with the massive family tree of elves. Mm-hmm. So are we ready for modifying a class? Yep. <laughs> uh, am I, am I pressing forward to resolutely here? Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the modifying is kind of an interesting thing. You know, some of the things that they point out here. Mm-hmm. Um, I have always envisioned you know, and also this was validated by fourth edition. But for example, I, I always kind of pictured the uh, Templars of uh, Sorcerer Kings and Dark Sun being warlocks. But when they mention in here, like, what if a paladin swore, you know, themselves to a powerful NPC instead? And I was like, wow, you just kind of made the case for uh, Templars being paladins instead of warlocks there. <laughs> yep. Well, if only there were some sort of conquest oath. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> there's it's, it's that kind of too. purpose built i mean you, you remember that ua that had uh, uh paladins of tyranny i mm-hmm. mean whoa <laughs> <laughs> that did get a 30 32 point yikes out of me though yeah yeah Whoa. paladins of play styles you don't want to see at your table <laughs> accurate <laughs> um but like changing proficiencies to me um is an argument for not putting it here and modifying a class, but just putting into the class design of, I don't know, this should be folded somehow into class and background. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Like yeah. what it's fundamentally storing is a story that we previously would have called a prestige class. Yeah. A kit. And maybe it's part of your subclass and maybe it's not. But it, 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 I think it's sort of trying to tell a story about maybe religious assassins with some kind of creed. Um, <laughs> and like, I, I'm here for that. That's, that's a great story with whether with the uh, frequently maligned by me uh, assassin subclass or it's uh, much better, much better later cousin, the phantom. Um, and, and just like, I mean, I, I, I still want my 5e Avenger. I will keep saying that, but... Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I feel you. Um, but anyway, what I'm trying to say is, like, do you want that story to flow out of background or class or subclass? And changing the class is maybe the weirdest move to me there. Yeah. And if you're going to include this, then just say, you know, you definitely get this skill, stealth, Thieves tools. Pick three more. 
we don't know what your story is. Just go. It's fine. I promise. <laughs> well, so here's here's my thing about mod- the modifying the classes section. Um, I feel like the advice is kind of all over the place. It basically says if you want to just change something, some singular aspect like proficiencies, go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. If you want to restrict this uh, to certain races, go ahead and do it. If you want to substitute something they can do for something that another race has or, or sorry, another, another another class has, depending on you know how, how it works in your setting, go ahead and do it. That's kind of all it says. Yeah. Right? Like, really, this could have been uh, summed up as, you know what? Don't sweat the small stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and it's almost right. all small stuff. It, it is interesting in that one of the big things that they do hammer is be careful about warlock spells because warlocks only need a power nap to get their stuff back. Right. Um, and things start breaking really badly and in a hurry. Once warlocks have animate dead, <laughs> God, don't do it. It's <sighs> just a free tip from me. Yeah, but the other thing that's interesting is when they're trying to say, like, if you substitute a feature that was for one of the other pillars, you know, you should probably keep it as part of that pillar, which would be great. Except that I don't think they really nailed down classes having distinct only one pillar abilities well enough to play with that yeah they don't even define what it means well enough to actually make that statement um so there's a a thing here about how uh when he talks about restricting class access you can break that down still further bards of the college of lore could be high elves and bards of the bards of the college of war could be wood elves so Okay, I don't like it as a hard restriction. I think that's not great as a hard restriction. Yes. I do wish that setting material would invoke the names of subclasses more often. Yes. Um, I can see this as, in general, people from this culture do not take this class or this subclass, but you are not barred from doing it. What is your story? Why are you doing it? You know? Right. Or, or maybe, like, this... This subclass is socially important in this faction. Mm-hmm. Just, just go ahead and invoke that name in your, your setting text. Yeah, right. and and they don't. And I think it's a missed opportunity mm-hmm. to like, make a statement and say and have a player say, you know, I know what I'm getting into by yeah. grabbing this subclass <laughs> the- with, with some opt out ways to go there the the, the one uh, subclass that actually is kind of tied to a setting is the purple dragon knight which is actually not really a purple dragon knight so. <laughs> right well sure <laughs> it's a better at night it's fine <laughs> um yeah i mean i i don't know so i am kind of curious because this is one class feature substitution that i've seen come up in a couple third party things and that is Basically giving a ranger a smite-ish ability that's a lot like the paladins. So I figured, as long as we're talking about screwing with class features, what do you two think about that? So I did that uh, as a special feature of both the Lantern Bearer and Stormcloak rangers 
uh, when I wrote those. That is one um, of the places I saw that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm not fully again it, though I did pointedly go with D6s rather than D8s. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that uh, Paladin Smiting is is so OP by about <laughs> fourth or fifth level that, well, really, really fifth level with extra attack when they can smite twice in a round, uh, that um, getting rangers in on the fun of the, the way that paladins are overpowered is a little... Okay, that might be oversolving the problem, but boy, have you solved that problem decisively. Um and like, I don't know. I think that um, like you can only smite once per round might be an answer there. <laughs> um, not talking about the smite spells, just the divine smite yeah. function, um, or also like lowering the damage expression. But you know, paladin divine smite is so good that the smite spells get overshadowed. Yeah, it's so good. And I was just curious because all that. that's probably one of the biggest crossover things that I've seen in some design space and in third party things. And, you know, I haven't seen a lot of other things ported from one class to another. I mean, is, is your question more related to why is it the Ranger or why only the Ranger? No, I know why it's the Ranger, but, <laughs> but could you give that similar type of thing to other classes? I, I guess I'm just like, I, I'm just curious. Like that is such an iconic thing for paladins. For paladins. Right. But even then, like reading that in some of those Ranger classes, it didn't feel wrong per se. But I don't know that you'd want to like give that to say somebody that was more of a like a blade singer type. I guess my question is if you give a similar thing, but it's uh, not as effective or overpowered. Well, okay. Here's, does it still let the paladin have the good one? Right. The, this is okay. Here's another design thing that I saw this in and I'm sorry for bring, pulling us off this, uh, <laughs> this trail here, but, Oh, well we never go on tangents here. <laughs> I mean, come there, on. there was a bard subclass that basically had the ability to emulate in a less good way, less, you know, efficient way, other subclass or other classes, things like it could get like a minor sneak attack or it could get a minor smite or, and I kind of didn't like that because it kind of just felt like its thing was doing other people's thing. And I guess I was trying to dig at why that bothered me more than say giving a ranger, you know, a slightly different version of smite, but that's kind of a broad topic. It just kind of popped into my head as we're talking about, you know, swapping out class features here. Yep. Um, I definitely think it's something you want to be very, very careful with. Um, the the list of kinds of substitutions that you go drastically wrong is well extensive. Mm-hmm. For example, don't substitute a paladin's uh, level level feature for another extra attack. Yeah, don't, don't recommend it. <laughs> well, uh, and I mean it, it, it. It really cuts into 
you know, one of the things that keeps fighters competitive in tier three and tier four. It, it does. It does call out in here that you should be cognizant of stepping on another class's toes right. with, right. with what mm-hmm. you're doing. It, it specifically says, you know, you don't want to give a certain class, you know, certain abilities because that's going to step on the turf of another class. And so what's the point of that new class variant that you're making if you're just using stuff from another class that already exists? Mm-hmm. Sure, for sure. But, you know, if we're, if we're going to talk about is there an existing feature that can be used as a model? Well, typically... Well, a yeah, lot of I stuff mean, has been written. I mean, I guess for me, the the issue is if this section is written for homebrewing DMs, then I think it's perfectly fine to make a specific set of classes to go with your game that you're going to run, right? Yeah. Um, and if though if the if you're restricting class access to for your campaign, you know, it's okay to give a new class that you're creating some rogue abilities if you're not allowing the regular rogue in the game because of your campaign setting. Right? The mind boggles, but yes. Right. But I, I mean I but I'm using an extreme example on yeah. purpose, right? Because because the idea is is to not actually replace another class's ability, you mm-hmm. know, with, with your new class. But if you're actually making a bespoke homebrew setting that no one else is going to see and you want to restrict the, the players to five specific classes that aren't, you know, fighter, barbarian, bard, cleric, paladin, whatever, then it's okay to pull some of those and mix and match and go crazy, go wild, do what you want to do. Um, but you you might break some of the rules, right? Of typical class design. That's okay if you know that, right? For sure. Yeah, and what's been really interesting to me, and I actually think this is a testament to the playstyle of Five E, is that I have seen people get like kind of upset when someone steps on their niche, but it's usually not a broad niche. It's like if your fighter and your paladin are both doing damage, it's not so much that the paladin is doing more damage. It's when someone else does damage the same way you do in the same party. You know, there's a different feel to how different classes even do the same things. And that's, that's also kind of funny to me because I've, you know, had plenty of parties where there were two people of the same class Mm -hmm. and no one felt like their niche was getting stepped on even though they were doing literally the same thing. It was two barbarians. Yeah. They were both, I would like to rage. Mm-hmm. Of course they were. And they were different subclasses, <laughs> but right. It's, it's such, um, such a, like a, a sense of how the player is identifying with the class. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting to, to realize. Yeah. But I mean, if you rage and you grow a dinosaur tail, that's completely different than, <laughs> you know, yes, fair. It is. Uh, yeah. Um, so you want to move on to variant spell points? Uh, sure. Uh, this is what I hear about a lot. Um, it, using spell points to, to cast your spells with rather than spell slots. There are definitely people who uh, don't appreciate the awe and majesty of Vancean spell spellcasting. <laughs> uh, I think that's because um, Vancean language is not used enough. Uh <laughs> I think that 
maybe schools need to be teaching. No, they don't need to be teaching bands in school. <laughs> no, <laughs> there is especially not the um, the, the Leoness trilogy. <laughs> Stuff gets weird in those, like sexual abuse. Weird. No, don't. Do yeah, that. no. I love the mages in those books, but man, the rest of them I could miss. <laughs> and to be fair, fifth edition is kind of fancy and light, right? Yeah. If you, if you it, consider right. fancy. Uh, I actually really love this iteration of fancy and magic. It makes me super happy. Yeah, um, it's it's completely different when you're talking about a slot isn't not only is a slot not assigned to a specific spell, but mm-hmm. a spell isn't restricted to just one level. Yep. And that's a whole different thing than right. than previous envisioning of spell slots right well the only the only the only way in which fifth edition is vancian is that when you use a spell you used its slot mm-hmm. that's uh, well, literally it right and a, a spell is a fixed rules object yeah oh, not, sure y- yeah but yeah and not something yes. more sort of right uh fungible and uh, alterable on the fly right you can pump the spell you put more red mana in to make it do more damage. Right, but that part's not Vancean. Right, no, I, I agree. Right, I'm agreeing with you. Um, but it, it being a fixed rules object at all is still fundamentally Vancean mm, right. in a way that I am actually super invested in mm-hmm. as just someone who likes fantasy. Uh, yeah. Learning a spell is a phrase that means something pretty definite Mm -hmm. instead of I have now I now have a new like set of levers to to pull and complex set of decisions to make to cast this spell. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of what I, I loved about the realms when I was younger and this doesn't come up like in gameplay a lot, but I loved like in some of the spell books, there would be like this version of fireball uses different material components. And it was this wizard's variation on fireball that they had written. And I really liked like little minute things like that, that were showing that this was this particular person's version of that spell. Right. And you know where that belongs back on page 283 (laughs) in the creating a spell section where they don't talk about that at all. Actually, you bring that up. It reminds me of one more thing that the creating a spell section actually desperately needs for everyone's benefit, which is a discussion of why uh, consumed expensive components matter and when they should matter. Yeah. And uh, it needs that section so that the D&D designers will remember it. <laughs> right. The College of Creation bard would like a word. <laughs> and 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 I'm I'm not going to mention my cost versus cost plus fiat rarity. Thing <laughs> right. That I You've done a very good job of not mentioning that. Thank you. Very good. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't mention it right now. <laughs> so anyway, let's talk about spell points here real quick. Right. So if you're ninth level, a ninth level spell slot costs 13 points. Mm-hmm. And if you are, if you are 20th level, you get 133 spell points. Yep. But you can only cast six through ninth level spells with at one slot of each of those. 
but you sure could cast uh let's see 19 fifth level spells <laughs> yeah 19 fifth level spells a day that's the thing you could do with your life i'd be happy casting 19 fifth level spells a day Yes, you would. That is a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of damn, uh, damn fifth level spells. <laughs> I I feel like that might be the, the sort of super abusive corner case. <laughs> I mean, and yes, it, that does mean not casting your sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth level spells that day. But if it's uh, nineteen, whoa. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So where does it say? Where does it tell me in here? I can only cast one. Uh, that spell. is in the paragraphs. Um, uh, I'm probably looking right at the fourth paragraph under under yeah. the header. Yeah. Spells for of six level and higher is the oh, opening of that paragraph, and, and that's interesting because it does not reflect what's actually in the spell progression. Yeah, right. That right. reflects well, warlock play only. Right. Well, and so that's why, you know, if they're going to make that the rule and put it in the middle of a dense six paragraphs of stuff, they should actually adjust their table accordingly. Just put a note next to it, right? Put an they're asterisk. not trying to make this easy to use, Sam. I know. <laughs> sorry. That's, that's my problem. Exactly my point that I'm pointing out. Hey, there's only so many bullet points and asterisks you can use in a uh, product. <laughs> there's a budget on these things. Surely you know that. <laughs> Spending that budget does not increase the monstrous CR. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's also, I mean, it, I get why, but it is interesting that this does not apply to warlocks. Right. So if you're a warlock, yep. you are casting the, the spell slot level that you get and you are happy with it. You do not break it down into tinier first level or second level spells or whatever. Yeah. Well, I, I remember in D and D next when sorcerers were the only class that was on spell points. Um, and they had to be because they picked up new abilities as they burned spell points. Right. Uh, I, I think I've talked about it on the show before, but man, do I miss it. It was <laughs> such an interesting model of shifting from caster to fighter uh, over the course of an adventuring day. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just wanted to throw a question out there. If you, if anybody thought felt like, you know, they could have offered more variance spell casting systems. Um, one of the things that I have seen, there's actually some third party things that kind of touch on the same thing. One of which pretty much uses this exact same chart. Um, but it adds in things like being able to burn hit points to cast extra mm. spells, which is kind of interesting. I know it could get out of hand, but that is also very much a a uh, element of a lot of fantasy stories where the person pushes themselves beyond and almost kills themselves. Right. Um, I th- that's one of those things that I've always liked in principle, but it bothers me more than I can deal with that suddenly the best way to become a better caster is to take a level in Barbarian. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes, that's yeah. where the rules actually... chill about that. Yeah. I just wish that they had given another different take on magic, or even not even like a whole fleshed out system, just a, a paragraph that says, you know, there, there are other ways that you can conceive of magic working in your setting. 
And so if you don't want to use spell slots, you just want to have spells have a point cost, have at it. Like, I mean, I mean, for all that this edition resembles second edition, surely they'll be coming out with uh, player's option spells and magic sometime soon. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just saying, like, for all the variants that are here in this chapter, this one just feels kind of blah is all well what's interesting is when you compare this to the third edition um spell point thing that got introduced in our arcana that actually introduced the idea that you are memorizing a certain number of spells and you can use whatever you know you can cast your fireball however many times a day you want to with those spell points so that aspect of spell points that existed in a previous version wasn't something they could even do here because that's already you know, part of the rules now. Right. Right. Um, what I think is interesting is at the bottom, I'm not sure I agree with this where it says this system can be applied to monsters that cast spells, but it isn't recommended that you do so. I'm, is it that much harder? Uh, making any sense of it, uh, because monsters, um, per day stuff mm-hmm. is so arbitrary. Yeah. Like I can cast this, three times a day and this once per day there's like the levels of things that are on those lists mm-hmm. are unrelated to their to, to each other they're not they're not split out uh you'd have to then go and total up the points i guess yeah what well, i guess what was interesting to me is in fantasy age um they have like a section where they mention that you might want to half any of the casters spell points because they can use everything they have in this one encounter. Yeah. So that was just yeah, kind sure. of an interesting thing for someone, some other system that uses spell points. Yeah. Sure, I mean, sure. I, you know, Jared, I think that um, you should see the special traits section of the introduction <laughs> for more information on spell casting amongst your creatures. Oh my goodness. We're still stuck in that loop. <laughs> it's like groundhog's day. All right, so let's try to finish this up with creating a background. Yep. Um, creating a background is very straightforward. If you read the creating a background rules, mm-hmm. everything in here is self-evident. Yes, but I have some thoughts on it. Oh, please do. Step one, rooted in your world. I want more backgrounds that are very specific to the campaign setting. That would be so nice. It would. Like, it's fine to have somebody, like, I mean, they mentioned up there, you know, specializing this for an acolyte of Candlekeep. And that's cool. And I like the Candlekeep name drop. And, you know, you should buy that book because I seem to know some people that have written adventures for uh, Candlekeep uh, (laughs) Mysteries. But Uh, they're especially uh, appealing people. (laughs) (laughs) But there is so much you could do with more backgrounds that are tailored to a specific campaign setting. For sure. I mean, I'm always a little sad that like the one we got is just faction agent. Yeah. And, and it's not general Harper. faction agent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think, well, we do actually have special backgrounds for each of the houses. And mm-hmm. that's also weird uh, because they definitely uh, knock down some walls of, what things are allowed to do. Oh yeah. Well, that's, that was something else I was going to say is for example, in Ravnica, 
your background might grant you extra spells. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And like what's he basically telling us? Yeah. It's okay to add stuff to their, their spell lists from, from background. It's just wild. Mm-hmm. That, that idea still hurts my brain. Um, <laughs> And it hurts my brain because like, for the spellcasters to get something and the non-spellcasters to receive nothing at all that is comparable, it, you know, even though this is just a new way to spend your uh, precious few spell slots. Yeah. Well, it feels weird. I think if you're going to do a background where you're providing extra spells for spellcasters, you need to do another version of that background that does something different for your non-spell casters. But there's nothing for backgrounds to do for non for yeah, I know. fighters. Right? I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. have that idea. Unless it's giving you an extra uh, um, fighting style or something, but... Whoa. <laughs> Holy jeez, that is too powerful. Yeah, I know. That's that's where I'm just like, you know... I, yeah, I can't necessarily think of anything like that. But um, the other thing, though, that I also think is interesting is when it talks about background features, it specifically tells you that it shouldn't give you any bonuses to roles or advantage on anything or anything like that. But that has been broken in places. Mm-hmm. And that been broken in official content. Um, I'm trying to remember. Oh, I guess it might be broken in ghost assault marsh. There's some advantage. Yeah, I think so. Um, but here's the thing. I don't mind that as long as it's doing it in a very specific circumstance. Yeah. If you're telling me that under a certain circumstance that this background would be relevant, I get advantage. That's cool. And sometimes I think that's easier for players to use than some of the more amorphous uh, background Mm -hmm. features. Yep. Because sometimes players don't want to remind you, Oh, I should know somebody in this town, you know? Yep. For sure. Yeah. No, I agree. So I have some final thoughts about this chapter. <laughs> All right. Do they involve looking up the uh, the chart and for spellcasting monsters? And- no, they do not. But <laughs> I, I didn't want to the hospital I, for a math emergency. I did, <laughs> yes, that's what it is. <laughs> I, I didn't want to uh, to cut us off and push us into the final thoughts unless everybody was ready to go there. So no, I'm set. Nope. Okay. Um, so one thing about the format of this chapter is it has a lot of variants like uh, gritty healing and, you know, gritty whatever, or, you know, the rest rules that are slightly different and make for a much grittier feel or the, you know, whatever. Um, and I wish that what they had done is grouped or at maybe at the end of the chapter given a list of if you want to use these variant rules to run in a gritty setting, choose to use these variants, right? Choose Mm -hmm. gritty healing, choose the the variant rest, choose the whatever, whatever, right? Um, Or if you want a more high magic setting, choose the, you know, uh, uh, the hero hero points and the, uh, you know, second wind or whatever they call the thing. Right. Um, and and the and the quick healing or whatever or the short rests that are that are five minutes and that right like mm-hmm. choose this set of variants to get this whole flavor, but because of the way it's formatted, those rules variants are split up amongst the you know the first twenty pages of the chapter or whatever, and it's hard to kind of keep track of oh if I want to do this I could use that variant or if I want to do that I can use that variant mm-hmm. and then it gets lost in there so I feel like 
there would be a way to, but just give me a bullet list, right? If you, gritty settings uh, are are could possibly in, include these variants and just bullet list the name of the variant that you just described a few pages earlier, right? Yeah, what I would have loved, you know, earlier in the book, it actually makes this delineation between you know, this is a high fantasy setting and this is, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when it's assigning that to different existing D and D settings, mm-hmm. if they would have used those same categories and maybe put like a keyword next to some of these options, like right. this plays yep. into this. And it says in the introduction that part of these are to emulate certain genres better than others, but it never really follows through with pointing you towards right. which ones are you. for those. Right. Gen- right. Nah. Exactly. Yeah. Like different, d- just describing levers, you can pull to like change things up in really specific ways and what you'll get out of that. I, I don't want D and D to be all things to all people, but I do want to like admit that it can be more than dungeon bashing. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And I want to show the levers really, really clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's the thing that I, love most and want to see other games take from Knights Black Agents. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the different modes of play and, and tones of play are so good there. And that's handled with, you know, rules variants uh, tagged in almost every situation, mm-hmm. maybe too much. Right. Um, <laughs> if you can, you know, store your whole rules variant in, uh, you know, maybe a double handful of rules stored on one page. Awesome. Mm-hmm. That's ideal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The alien RPG does a similar thing. It has, you know, sort of slightly different way to deal with things in a cinematic style campaign versus in a pulp style, mm-hmm. you know, like one shot set of adventures, right. Or one, one or two shots. Right. Um, yeah. And, and that's the thing is that the, the thing is this chapter actually gives us, some of those widgets. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't group them together and tell us what genre it would promote if you use those all at the same time. Right. And that's, that's also why it feels weird that the, the, the kind of math structure for creating your own content is in the same chapter because it starts off telling us we're going to give you all these little widgets to emulate different genres, but then also we're going to give you this tool set for just building whatever. And that's cool, but that feels separate. <laughs> right. And in the, and in those sections, it says, well, here's how to build whatever. Oh, and it's a good idea to think about the flavor of your setting and what, how you could make this mm-hmm. match that. Well, thanks a lot, but you didn't like, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, so, um, and then I have a second overall sort of thought and it's based on something I said to Brandis earlier today. And that was that like chapter eight, I feel like this chapter should be earlier in the book. And what I really feel like is it shouldn't be the second chapter. Okay. I think chapter eight should be the first chapter. Right. Yeah. And then you can have chapter three and four and five. Right. Cause, cause mm-hmm. you get chap- chapter eight tells you mm-hmm. here's mm-hmm. how to really think about the rules of the game as they are. Right. Three, four and five tells you how to create an adventure in NPC and what to do in between adventures and then you have chapter nine, which tells you how to well, take hang on. six is between adventures. Oh, what's five? Uh, oh, five environments. Environment. Right, right, right. Okay. So that's what I should probably right. be like the second chapter because it's such high reference rules material. 
isn't three creating an adventure though? It, it is. <laughs> I'm just saying right, if you're so, putting if, if you're putting the high reference chapter eight first, putting high reference chapter five second is maybe I'm following the that. same logic. I'm good with that. Eight, five, three, four, and then nine. Right. But here's here's the thing, though. That still sounds like I've put nine way far back, but that moves nine up to page one hundred and twenty instead of two hundred and sixty three. Yeah. So that's I think I think a lot of chapter nine would look pretty different if you did that. Like, I'm not sure that the creating your own content toolboxes of new monsters, and new spells need to even be that early. Yeah, I, w- uh, I would put the, that way. The levers back. for controlling your game's tone and mood need to be at least that early. Mm-hmm. Right, and so we're making the case that we should split this along the lines that Jared was talking about, mm-hmm. where the creating a monster part of this chapter should actually be a separate chapter. Mm-hmm. From right. from then on, should be a separate chapter. Uh, right, so uh, I, just, I just want us all to remember that this chapter is not named Crawford. This chapter chapter is named Crawford's Monster. <laughs> I'm just I'm I make I want to make the case for this because Brandis wasn't too happy with my statement earlier. No, I, I'm not. Wasn't unhappy with it. I just wanted to hear you lay it out. <laughs> so this chapter gives you variant rules that let you make your homebrew adventures feel unique, right? And yeah. therefore having it you know, near where we talked about how to create an adventure actually works. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and there are definitely parts of this that don't even need to be in this chapter. They just need to be shuffled into chapter sure, eight, which but, we're moving to the front. Right. But right? let's pretend we didn't do that. Right. Right. So, because look, all these variants, you can move to chapter eight, technically. Uh, you, you can. Well, I also agree but, with you that some of the combat options you could just dump in a player's handbook too. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, that's true too. Yeah, but this this chapter gives you things that need testing to see if it works in your mm-hmm. campaign, right? Which should go in your adventure near your adventure building chapters, right up up in the front because I've now moved those to the front, right? So yeah, I mean, I, so that's that's really I'm I'm making the case for that because I think the the stuff in chapters one, two, and seven can be in the back. Seven's just yep. going to be a reference chapter mostly for you anyway, because it's ma- magic items. I mean, while we're reorganizing, uh, all of <laughs> chapter four from Tasha's uh, definitely needs to get shoved into the new first chapter of this book. Well, okay, but I was presuming that book didn't no, no, exist no. when this I, one I know, was being I know, organized, I know. right? <laughs> uh, I, I'm just thinking about the Session Zero stuff and the environmental hazard stuff. Mm-hmm. Um that's that's all again important high reference content so i don't like necessarily um bringing in comparisons to to other games but this is something that struck me is for example in fantasy age when they have alternate rules there are times when they will then publish a setting that will say this uses this alternate rule, this alternate rule, this alternate rule. Right. And that is not something that you really see as much in D and D. Well, in, in part because it's just been done casually by users for. Oh its yeah. Whole lifespan. Well, but let's, but let's look at this though. So, okay. Um, so you've got forgotten realms, which is your baseline. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the core. It doesn't have the variance. Okay. Then you've got 
the Magic the Gathering settings, which all have a specific flavor for that setting and all include either some kind of rules thing like the piety rules or they include like some extra race class things or something that makes those settings unique. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so they, they have variants in them already. You've mm-hmm. got Eberron. Does, does the Eberron book have variants in it? Uh, in the player facing content, not so much in the DM facing content. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but I mean, the, what other settings do you have? Alexandria. I I guess what I'm saying though, is from a wider standpoint, these never really get like the modules they put in here. Don't get used elsewhere. Other modules get designed and used for those things. Yeah. Well, I mean, cause the thing is that everything they publish other than the magic, the gathering stuff is forgotten realms. Hmm. I mean, mean, that's, that was the point I was trying to make is forgotten realms had been more different. It would have gotten its own like rules modules, but yeah, basically they didn't want to do um, action points again or hero points for Five E Eberron, mm-hmm. so yeah. that would have been just about the only thing. Yeah, because that showed up right. in the the original the test document. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I get your point. I'm just yeah. saying, like, I guess for me, my point is, well, what freaking settings have they? released not very many but honestly you you could do that with adventures too though well like so so ravenloft is definitely you know neck deep in in rules modules yeah yeah for sure um and like we've gotten a a pretty fair number of of settings really because like there's ghost and salt marsh full up on rules modules Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty equally player facing and GM facing, but mm-hmm. intended for use in other settings because the ship stuff. Yeah, uh, it's not Greyhawk specific. Just we're doing a ship one, guys. <laughs> um, right. And like Theros takes the piety rules and goes big with them. Is the rules module? No. Also, yes. <laughs> yeah, it was modulated by other people by reverse engineering it. <laughs> right, and, and there's the like. There's additional new stuff in there. It's player facing because it's your heroic, heroic destiny. Is that what it's called? Um, I can't remember now. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the, I know. The iconoclast yeah. stuff yeah, yeah. and all yeah. that. Yeah. Um. Like. Um. So let let me approach this a different way. Let me let me say this to you, Jared, in answer to your to your statement. I don't disagree with you. By the way, I actually think they sh- they would do well to to do that, but but. This book, this this chapter, mm-hmm. was written, as Branda says, not to train a bunch of people to become designers, but to help people understand different variations of the core rules that they might want to use in their own setting, not in a published setting from Watsi. Yeah, I, I can understand that. It's just kind of interesting to me that there isn't a lot of reference to the things that they introduce as optional rules here i mean maybe they just they knew that everybody wasn't going to read the dmg so it didn't matter <laughs> well well like the, the the chapter five rules we called this out in talking to Johannio. um the the chapter five rules they do such a good job of actually using their own rules mm-hmm. and not just making up a new rules widget yep. yeah when they needed that thing 
they actually went back to their own text, um, as Rome of the Frost Maiden exemplifies. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and on the other hand, in chapter eight, they came up with these social interaction rules that don't even use the stat blocks of creatures. <laughs> they don't use stat blocks of creatures. Uh, the the rules or in adventures don't even consider right. them. It's not not ever referenced again. Right, and and that's what I mean. So it's kind of hit and miss in yeah. terms of how no, they're absolutely. You know, absolutely. Yeah, um, but I, I suspect that the great majority of adventure writers uh, don't remember that two page spread of social rules exists. Oh, sure. I hope I hope they actively forget them. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a fair cop. <laughs> yeah, it was just an observation that, you know, you can write something that intentionally refers to a very broad module that you intended to be referred back to, or you can do things that are meant to be kind of more of a baseline. Sure, play with these, you know? Yep. Yeah. But I really do wish they had used that guideline of the different genres that they define earlier in this book and mapped those to these options, though. Yep. I, I can I can get on that page. Yeah. Um, like some of them are probably close enough to each other that, I mean, how much rules module do you need to really separate um, sword and sorcery from uh, the uh, waveform high fantasy? It's some days it's low, some days it's high. High <laughs> fantasy of the realms. Like, is it different? You can run the realms as sword and sorcery. I mean, mm-hmm. it's that's certainly the mode of first ed and early second ed realms. Mm-hmm. So, eh. um, I mean, I, I I don't disagree, but I mean, but I will also say that if you did take all of the gritty modules, so to speak, yeah, yeah. from this chapter and apply them to a setting, it would feel very different from core forgotten realms in fifth edition. That is not a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah I absolutely agree with that. So it's, um, you know, like Isirion's in Kyridian of the West Marches is one of my flat out favorite uh, third party supplements for 5e. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is very into that kind of thing, at least at, on a discussion level. Yeah. Uh, I'm not looking at it right now to see exactly what they go with. But uh, of all the third party supplements I own, that one rates highly for trying to get you to discuss it with me at some point, Sam. <laughs> I need to get my magnifying glass out to read the freaking You are not wrong. That is super, super painfully let's, let's true. Let's publish a book that's so dense we're going to use four-point font. Uh, and, and then also indent for you know, six meters out of every column. Right. Why? Yeah, I am, in fact, getting a new eyeglasses pres- prescription so that I can read that book. <laughs> also, so I can paint minis, you know, whatever. <laughs> so any any other final thoughts? Um, I was just going to say what's weird about this chapter is because my brain likes to tinker with things and flip switches on and off, even though a lot of these options I wouldn't use for some reason, this, this chapter is kind of comforting to me because it's almost like telling me that, yeah, maybe if you don't tinker with these things, but tinker away, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's kind of a nice resonance to get from this edition. Yeah, it does. It does definitely do a good job of giving permission to futz with things, right? Mm-hmm. So twist a knob over here, futz with some buttons over here, uh, you know, reskin something over here, and voila, you have you have created something that is different from 
what you had before. Yep. Um, certainly the, the second ed DMG had its own, you know, hacker's guide portions mm-hmm. uh, that were not as broad as this. It was really specifically about class and race. That was weird. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and man, that was a weird two page, two page spread on classes. And then the third ed DMG definitely had a hacker's guide. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't specifically recall the fourth ed DMG having one though. I'm certain the DMG two had one. Yeah. Uh, but you know, on a certain level, like you can slot in your own things to this, you know, power card format is almost so obvious. It doesn't need saying, mm-hmm. right. Just don't yeah. use D and D insider to do it. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I think on that note, uh, it might be time for us to uh, talk about where we can find Jared on the internet. Hey, then you can find me at Gnomes Do, where I do a bunch of reviews and occasionally some other articles. Uh, you can find my personal blog at whatdoiknowjr.com. And if you want to look me up on Twitter, you can find me at whatdoiknowjr at Twitter. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and Brandis? Um, I'm on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. I write for tribality.com. My personal blog is brandastoddard.com and my Patreon is brandastoddard. Excellent. I am at DM Samuel on Twitter and rpgmusings.com on the interwebs. And um, yeah, so, uh, you know, there's a Delta variant thing and uh, it's dangerous and uh, wear your mask, please. Yep. Um, In conclusion, Black Lives Matter, Trans Lives Matter. No kids in cages, please, people. Mm-hmm.